You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're going to start my interview with Keith Donahue with a seven-and-a-half-minute reading from his new novel, Angels of Destruction. During Long Division, as Mrs. Patterson worked on remainders at the chalkboard, Sean kept spinning around in his desk chair to make sure Nora stayed awake. Even when he was called to the front to demonstrate how to divide 400 by 6, he checked on the progress of her fatigue. Stultifying wet heat off the radiators made her drowsy, and she struggled to hold up her head in the cup of one hand. Her eyelids quivered, then closed in slow motion. Her head slipped from her palm, and then she recovered once more before she could not fight off sleep any longer. With every inspiration, her nose whistled, and she began a purring snore, oblivious to the mathematics unfolding all around her. By tacit arrangement, everyone let her rest until art class began. Sean woke her with a whisper and a pad and colored pencils in hand, and she begged him to sit beside her at the table beneath the panoramic window. She drew with a quick and certain hand, sketching out in a few deft strokes a tensed leopard, flash of tawny spotted coat, and teeth and claws as angry slashes. Cowering in the corner of the page, a gazelle, caught in the split second of fear, knees bent, neck torqued, as its head made a quarter turn too late toward the predator. Sean watched as she drew, tightened his body like the muscles in the gazelle's flanks. He smelled blood and fear. Lost in her drawing, Nora moved the colored pencils with grave concentration. Work complete, she set the paper aside, took another sheet, ripped it in half, and began folding precise creases. Mrs. Patterson, making the rounds among the schoolchildren, paused to offer encouragement or advice to each child. When she reached the window and saw what Nora was doing, she broke from the regimen and then strode to her, stopping close enough to cast a shadow over the table's pen-pock surface. Transfixed by the drawing of the attacking leopard and the delicate manipulations at hand, when she finished folding, Nora laid an origami crane beside her picture and immediately began to work on another. Without a word, Mrs. Patterson slid the drawing into her hands, held it up in disbelief, and walked back to her chair at the front of the room. She considered the craftsmanship of the piece, still staring at its realism, and asked in a loud voice, Where did you learn to draw like this? Nora did not look up from her origami. I could always draw, she said bending over another wing. The whole class now focused on her paper folding as she built a third bird. When finished, she lined them up across the front edge of her desk, stood, and bent so that her face was inches away from them. She drew a deep breath and blew. The paper birds seemed to float in midair, falling up before fluttering to the ground. Each one landed perfectly on its base, before toppling under the weight of wings. Sharon clapped first, then Dory and Gail from the other side of the room, and all at once the entire class was on its feet, cheering and stomping with sheer delight. Nora stared straight ahead at Mrs. Patterson, challenging her to believe, waiting for the teacher to smile before she returned a broken beam of her own. Nora watched Sean as he had watched her, and every time he noticed her looking his way, he flinched and reddened. The lonesome, like the mad, know one another on sight, as if marked by a scent. She recognized his broken heart before she knew its cause, and he knew that she knew. Later that afternoon, she sidled up to him on her, to walk her home. As they waited outside the door, after after the dismissal bell had chimed, Sean asked, How did you do that trick with the paper birds? Origami, and not a trick, she said. 
What are we waiting for? It's freezing out here. I just like to let the big kids go first. Stick with me. They won't bother you. She grabbed his hand and pulled, running and laughing as they parted knots of children, and once they were through the crowd, the ice-cold air took their breath away. Someone slammed hard against the chain-link fence, sending a tremor along its breath. Breadth. And when they returned and when they turned to see the cause, no person could be found. They passed through clicks of students walking home along the quiet sidewalks and into the emptiness of three o'clock. A dog barked, invisible behind a tall wooden gate, and Nora shushed it with one curt hush. The distance between the houses widened as the school grounds receded, and to get home they took a shortcut through the woods, a bike path that ran alongside a drainage ditch, not more than a hundred yards long. Hidden by the bare forest of January, travelers were invisible from the streets and prying eyes. Usually, usually Sean lollygagged at spots along the trail, peering over the edge into the frozen creek, dropping stones to shatter the ice along the backs, banks, listening to the trees complain in the shifting wind. When they were alone, Nora stopped suddenly, looked up and down the path, and then produced a single cigarette from her pocket, holding it before him like a sacred artifact. She peeled off her mittens and took out a book of ancient matches. You're not going to smoke that, Sean's eyes widened. Smoking stunts your growth. That's what my mom says. You don't want to get stunted, do you? The flame flared blue from the sulfur, and the cigarette already hung from her lower lip. I used to smoke a pack a day, she muttered, lighting up. Nora snapped out the match and threw it on the path. Just kidding. I only wanted to show you this. Forming an O with her lips, Nora exhaled a ring of smoke that widened like a ripple in a pond, and she blew another ring which passed through the first hoop, and then quickly she exhaled a long trail of smoke that shot through both rings like an arrow piercing a heart. Glee in his high voice, he asked, Where did you learn to do that? With the toe of one shoe, she stubbed out the cigarette and then looked past him to the high, thin clouds stretched across the winter sky. I know lots of things, she said, and catching the interest in his eyes, she shrieked and tore off through the woods, her shoes skating across the snow and bare earth, and he did not catch up to her until they reached the back fence of Mrs. Quinn's yard. At a blind corner, they nearly crashed, and he, as he caught himself short by grabbing her shoulders, Nora screamed at the touch and laughed and screamed again, and he could see stars glistening at the back of her throat. And now, my interview with Keith Donahue. Keith Donahue is the Director of Communications for the grant-making arm of the National Archives in Washington, D.C. He's the author of The Stolen Child. His new book is Angels of Destruction. Thank you for joining me, Keith. Oh, thank you for having me. Keith, this is a very interesting book because it entwines a couple of different mysteries. And I think one of the things that is at the core of this book are discoveries that were made in the mid-18th century when we first learned that invisible things are real. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's what interests me most uh, in starting to write the book was things invisible uh, that, that people have this tremendous faith in. Um, and it's always a puzzlement to me. It's always a, it's always a challenge to me to understand why we believe in things we cannot see. Now, the, the, this book begins with uh, an elderly woman at home safe in her bed. And, right. and, and there's a lot of these images of safety and comfort, and the world outside is cold and hard right. to know, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and dark um, in the middle of the night. And, and that transition between light and darkness is, again, one of the themes and, and organizing principles in the, in the book. Well, tell us a little bit about the, the, the premise of the book. Where, where, where does it start off? 
the premise of the book. Um, or or the, the the beginning, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, well, the beginning is sort of the middle part of the book. Mm. The, the beginning is uh, the story of Margaret and Paul Quinn uh, raising their only daughter, Erica, um, in the 1970s. Um, she's a teenager in 1975. Um, Erica discovers some... Th- hidden secrets uh, from her parents' lives. Um, At the same time, she's dating a sort of romantic revolutionary, the last of the 1960s radical uh, type, and he wants her to run away with him to join a cult uh, called the Angels of Destruction. That happens... That story unfolds in the middle part of the book. The beginning of the book takes us 10 years past that point where Margaret Quinn, now all alone, uh, is left with her desire to see her daughter once again and her hopes and her fears. I was really interested in the um, 1970s, the, the the cult, the the Angels of Destruction, because one of the things that you talk about are some pamphlets, mimeographed things right. that he got. Did you did you, could you talk about researching that <laughs> that era and those things? Well, I was I was around in those those days, um, <laughs> uh, more or less the same age as the as the two runaways. But uh, so I can remember mimeographs and <laughs> and you know that's how. You, those were the printing presses of the of the mid seventies, where you would you would need a some sort of solution was put on a drum, and oh, it was it was horrible uh, <laughs> to have to do. So I kind of played with that. I kind of played with that whole notion of the sort of the handmade um, revolutionaries and the handmade pamphlets, and uh, you know that you could somehow get an ad in the back of Rolling Stone or something like that. <laughs> Send away to learn how to become a revolutionary. So they're, they, they are kind of distaff, uh, you know, radicals. They, they don't, uh, as they go through their progress west to join the angels, um, they're not the most successful, let's put it that way. One of the things that, that interested <clears throat> me was the way you capture the speech patterns, and and it's the speech rhythms of the 1970s in the central part of the book. I right. mean, could you talk about, um, did you, like, listen to uh, any tapes, or, or was this just out of the, the depths of your own memory? Some of it's memory, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the contributing factors to the book um, was a documentary on the Patty Hearst story, mm-hmm. and they, you know, interviewed... Uh, I can't remember all their names, but for this documentary, they interviewed the some of the members who were at the time. I believe they were still in in jail, although they may have been soon to be let out. So I I, I knew that. I mean, I knew of that and had had watched it in sort of preparation for that part of this of my story. Um, but the rest is all, you know, from memory or or made up how i think they sounded now i i have to ask <laughs> somewhat out of turn here but um at one point they come to a a tavern in new mexico yes called the mine shaft yes is that a strange love <laughs> riff <laughs> it's a real place believe it or not is it really yeah wow. yeah yeah it's a real place um that fit perfectly uh, with the with the themes of the book and and uh, yeah the mine shaft is is right where I, right where the book says it is uh, if you want to go and it's pretty it's a you know like a Harley bar uh, out in the out in the wild west and and the little town Madrid uh, not Madrid Madrid um, it's it's become somewhat gentrified over the uh, I was there recently as a matter of fact. Uh, but when I first saw it, the town in the um, must have been the 1980s, it was still pretty authentic. Uh, the the sort of rescued ghost town uh, from people who 
left the grid back in you know back in the seventies and eighties. Now, um, this this novel turns our, around uh, our belief in the invisible, right? And one of the invisible things that that we believe in, aside from love and hate and atoms and breath, right. are that uh, we don't see them are angels. Right. Could you talk about some of the research you did? Did you do much research for, for angels on, on what's known about them? No. Um, I did, I did uh, look in one book to find out about I knew I wanted to have the this radical group called Angels mm-hmm. something, um, and I there there's there's a there's a guide <laughs> there's a to all the angels that uh, are known or or have been named, and there are actually from Scripture there are actually uh, the angels of destruction. They're given names and they're in the book and. You know, one's the wrath of God, and one's the rod of God, and the fire of God, and so forth. And and I get that, and I I'm not trying to say anything about that one way or the other. Um, it just struck me as interesting that that uh, there. You know, before I started the book, I knew a few names of angels uh, that that everybody you know that uh, Gabriel and Michael and you know. But there apparently there are lots and lots of angels. There are, <laughs> and they have names and they have jobs and and so forth. And I, I this struck me as really interesting. It's something that I'd never looked into before, um, in sort of the, the Kabbalistic uh, scripture and and for that matter, in in uh, other faiths, there are these named angels with particular roles and particular. Um, Traits and and so I mean I was interested in the concept, but I didn't really do much beyond that. Um, I wasn't again I wasn't trying to write a contribute to the the uh, angelology uh, at all. Um, oh, I wanted to make them my own, and they're more they're more in line with uh, angels that that appear. In poetry, uh, Wallace Stevens has a bo- has a poem called uh, I think it's called "The Angels Among the Paisans," and um, one of the lines that influenced the book was, "There is a welcome at the door to which no one ever comes," and this struck me as sort of a very interesting concept about angels and about our response to to myth and to faith and and so on uh and the other angels that intrigued me were paul clay's angels um shortly before he died uh and and you know broke down and died uh clay did a whole series of these angels and they're like any other they're unlike any other angels you've ever seen um some of them have wings but that's about as far as they go i mean they're they're abstract and they're um, they have a different shade of meaning, I think, than for Paul Clay, for me, uh, and those were the kinds of that was the kind of research that I did. Uh, looked at art, uh, read poetry, dabbled in in the dictionary of angels, and then we're off. Now, um, this welcome at the door yeah. aspect that that's. The, where the the novel itself begins, right? With with a with a welcome at the door, right? Um, Margaret Quinn brings a, a a girl into her life, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about this this girl. Well, this this she's an interesting girl. Uh, she's arrives. Um, the first line of the book uh, is uh, Margaret hearing the knock at the door again. Um, which I hope people latch on to, that, that this knock has come before. Finally, she's heard it again, and she goes down against her better judgment. Uh, if you lived alone, if you're a 60-year-old woman, lived alone, 
in the middle of a January night, somebody knocks at the door, you might think twice about answering it. Well, she opens the door, and on the porch is a child, a nine-year-old girl in a tattered uh, threadbare coat and a suitcase and a partial uh, name, partial name tag uh, that's been ripped in two. And uh, she basically says, I have nowhere else to go. I have no family. I have nobody in the world. Um, I've been out here for a long time, uh, whatever that means. And she talks Margaret into taking her in. Uh, Margaret talks herself into letting her come in. They both come to an agreement that uh, they were made for each other uh, in some way. And Margaret decides to keep her which was probably the most astonishing thing about the book. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think is really superb about this book, um, it's written in, in very interesting short chapters. Yeah. And you, you um, create a kind of a, a pacing and a rhythm, um, almost like breathing, I guess. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but you know, I was after a sort of a mosaic quality, um, in the structure of it, um, in the pace of it. I knew, I knew going into it, going into, let me put it a different way. The going into it, I gave myself the challenge of this, its structure. Um, basically, the middle part of the book is about a hundred page flashback. And I was, this was my challenge to myself. Can you do this? Can you pull this off and keep people interested in the frame story um, as you go through? And part of that, I think, is, you know, there are little tricks of the trade, certainly. But once you make that decision, you, you're committed to it. And once I made the decision to sort of write these sort of brief um, sort of, I'm not sure of the word here, but these brief chapters, as you say, it you know it does give it a rhythm. It gives it a, and I like that. I like like breathing. Um, now, one thing that fascinates me about the prose in this book is it's really beautiful. I mean, it's just packed. Every paragraph, every sentence, is dense with meaning and, and omens. This is really a book about looking at our world and seeing something else. Right. Could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, it is about looking at our world and saying something else. And and some of the characters uh, late in the book, you know, come to much the same conclusion. Um, who are these people that we meet on the road? Uh, who are these? Who are, who is this strange creature in my third grade class? Um, what is the interplay between the natural world? And our imaginations, or our, to, I guess to be more precise about it, our emotional life. Um, I, I, I didn't. I don't want to go into sort of the pathetic fallacy here and uh, and all that, uh, but you know there there are connections between what's out there and what's in here, you know, what's inside of us. Um, there are manifestations, if you will, of our desires and our fears uh, that if you're attuned to them, maybe you see, maybe you notice more. Now, one of the things I think that's very interesting is the prose you use to capture the perception of Nora. Because we see her from the outside first, and she's a little girl. And even though she's fraught with um, oddness, and, and, right. and has a, there's a sense of the fantastic about her just by virtue of who she is and where she appears. Once we get inside of Nora, you have this wonderful sense of, of I'd say, almost the alien, a, a calculating intelligence that's that's really rather frightening. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, the the 
you know, part of the part of the deal with the angels of distraction mm-hmm. is that they have a role to play. And part, one of the things I was interested in in writing the book is this whole notion of creative distraction, and that, that in order for uh, change to happen, um, something has to give way to something else. And Nora knows that. Um, she is uh, smart in that way. I I, I really love the the character of uh, Margaret and and the the relationship between her and her sister right. Diane. Yeah. There's re- lots of really great uh, I think uh, familial relationships in here. The parents and and uh, and. Um, children, right. the the siblings. Could you talk about uh, creating these kind of emotional resonances? Which it just strikes me at this moment. This is all more invisible things. The invisible right. ties. Right. Exactly. Between sisters, that that you know, they have. There's some magic between sisters. Um, certainly, I mean, sisters who are close. I think that that um, you know is built over years, but eventually becomes intuitive and becomes. Um, you know, part and parcel of of their personalities. Uh, I come from a large family, so I've had a chance to observe people over over time um, in in all those different roles. And I don't claim any special inside knowledge or anything like that. But it it fascinates me. That's that's the key. Um, the more I wrote, uh, the more interesting this those kinds of relationships became um and the secrets tell me about the relationships between mothers and daughters because it's this is a key part of this book right yeah i mean it, it it's where the where it kind of started for me in terms of the character development the uh you know erica runs away um from home and leaves her Mother and for various reasons, uh, which Erica thinks are good reasons, she cuts off all communication. And Margaret spends years uh, thinking about her missing child. And certainly for me, I can't imagine any greater sorrow to not know what happened to your to your child. That sort of plot um, the plot point is also augmented by later in the book about relationships that that come to the surface between mother and daughter and at the essence I think the desire for unity, the desire for love to prevail. Um, One would hope and one imagines that that outweighs differences and that outweighs secrets uh, that are kept for ostensibly good reasons, but maybe they didn't need to be kept. So we have Margaret and Erica. We have Margaret and Nora who functions in some ways as a mother-daughter relationship. And then ultimately you have uh, Erica herself um, as a mother. And hopefully by the end of the book you see what that does for her, what that does for her as a character, um, what what that, how her experiences shape what happens sort of past the end of the book. Now, one of the things that I think is really wonderful about this book, you talk about plot points, is the plotting of this book. Because this is a book where plot points are omens and signs. Right. And and not even events, but the it's the plot points are contained in the way you turn the prose to describe something and suggest something to us that to change our vision, and not just of what's happening in the book, but also what's happening around us. Right, and and that that's certainly part of the fun of writing a book <laughs> is is uh, 
you know, to go against expectations and and you know, in your con- I'm conscious of it writing that this story I've I've seen parts of this story before. Um, where can I turn this uh, to make it new again? Um, I think Cormac McCarthy was quoted as saying something like, you know, the ugly truth is all books are made out of other books. And that's, that is the ugly truth. However, uh, you know, the challenge to make it new is what keeps us busy, what keeps us writing, what keeps us uh, trying to, trying to take those old stories and turn them. And in turning them, I think you expose some other kind of truth, um, some other kind of truth about, you know, that certainly going into it, I don't, I, I'll confess, I, I never really thought very much about angels in my life uh, until I started writing about them, I started thinking about them, and uh, not as sort of the hallmark uh, winged creatures that are on, you know, Christmas cards and, and that sort of thing. But more to the point of people in life who you meet who seem to have some super role in your in in your own story. Out of how, where do these people come from? What what is the what is the true nature of these strange angels and and uh, that became fascinating for me. And I, I think it's a universal where, uh, you know, and I think one of the characters says something to the effect of, um, you know, all faiths have some intermediary between, for the lost. You know, intermediary between the creator and, and the individual soul. And she, the character says you might as well assume that everybody as an intermediary, uh, that they're there to help you out. One of the things that this is, book is also about is the way we tell the stories of our lives, the mm. way we tell them to ourselves, because everybody's rewriting their own lives right. in this book, aren't they? <laughs> right, right, changing their names and so forth and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, this this became part of the process where uh, what would happen if you went on the lamb and you went underground and, oh, you would need a new name and then you would need a new identity. And just sort of that little idea resonated into what you're talking about where, where okay, well, if I've got a new name, I'm making up a whole new story <laughs> about who I am and about and, and a whole, kind of a whole new reality. And it I think in some cases it sticks, and you've got people living sort of imagined lives for real. Uh, you know, in in uh, I, I got, now that I think about it, I kind of feel that same way myself. That suddenly, uh, you know, I'm a writer. Oh, how about that? <laughs> it interests me too the way that you <clears throat> create a lot use. You create a feeling of the fantastic, that thing, that events and um, things that are happening around it, and people are in some way what we would normally describe as supernatural. But you don't use any of the um, cliche tropes. Mm-hmm. You 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 like rebuild it out of dirt and stones, or out of or, or more out of the <clears throat> suburbs and the people who yeah. inhabit them. Well, right, and and. Uh, so many of us live out there, uh, and they're so, you know, uh, you, have, you need to look for the magic uh, out there. And, th- again, that's, that's really something that, that is a persistent notion for me is, you know, what is the – where is the magic in the world? And, and for me, it be it, – I'll, t- I'll tell you a real quick story. I'm walking home from work in the city the other day, and uh, something flashed above me quickly. And 
I was the I'm sure I was the only one on the sidewalk to look up and to see a falcon hit a pigeon <laughs> in the restaurant, you know, in the letters of a restaurant sign, and the pigeon take off, you know, the falcon miss, the pigeon take off, and their feathers floating down from the sky, and I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> that was cool. Uh, you know, whether you're on the side of the falcon or the pigeon, but that was just, you know, that doesn't happen every day. That's what I'm looking for is the stuff that doesn't happen every day. Um, and in this in this story, in this particular story, uh, it is this girl who shows up and changes everything. It doesn't happen every day, but if it did, you'd never forget. You would never and that's that's Sean's story in in the novel. Um, he's sort of our witness of. Do you remember that summer that the angel came to town, or that winter the angel came to town? When you're writing about something like angels, yeah, there's a danger that it's going to become going to become fraught with uh, religious right. imagery, right. and take take the book down a path that's either uh you know uh theolo- theological right. or or smarmy <laughs> right, and, right. And, and this book is neither it, it's very it's in many ways it's almost uh kind of it has a almost hard boiled uh perception yeah. <laughs> hard boiled <laughs> angels hard boiled angels so yeah. it, it has that, that that level of perception could you talk about avoiding those things well and, yeah and and you're dead on because i don't i didn't want to do either I didn't want to. I, I'm not a theologian, and I hope, hopefully, I'm not smarmy. But uh, you know, the the, and, and I think the same is true with the other. You know, my first novel, where the use of the fantastic for me is a primarily, primarily, a way to get at very human emotions. Um, it's a interesting way it's an interesting avenue into the you know human psyche uh i think it it's it if it is successful it's successful because we are natural myth creators uh we are nat- we tell ourselves stories all the time uh to explain our lives to explain the unknown to ourselves. And sure, there's a body of literature, there's a body of theology that takes pains to tell us these stories. And we all know them. We also make up our own. We also make up our own myths to explain our own lives, and it's a unique and personal matter. That's, I think, where... If I'm working anywhere, that's where I'm working on how a particular, a particularized mythology uh, occurs, and and the both these stories are you know set in a particular time, a particular place that I you know remember vaguely. Um, that that was at a turning point. I mean, it's the Western Pennsylvania in the know, in that era was the end of an era. Uh, it was the end of Big Steel. It was the end of, you know, and there was economic woe and people were leaving and old people were left behind. And boy, this is kind of a rich vein of life that strikes me as, you know, people would be making up all kinds of stories to just get through these hard times. You know, and I think Probably the whole country now is making up its own myths about, um, you know, how are we going to get out of this economic funk that we're in? Uh, and you see it. You see it. I mean, you see people believing in sort of a mythology. And I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying that it has no more substance than any other story until... Somewhere further down the road, we'll see the proof. Uh, we'll see the results. We'll we'll read the myths, yeah, and experience them ourselves. Right. One thing that that I thought was interesting, 
And this kind of carries over from your other book, too, is uh, doppelgangers and, and pairs. There's lots of doppelgangers and pairs in this right. book. And, right. and that, why does that interest you? Uh, why does it interest you? I, I mean, I, I th- part of it is is how siblings mm-hmm. um, seem to function as, you know, mirrors of one another sometimes. In the case of this book, Margaret and Diane, certainly the strongest characters. But also, uh, I, I, th- I think for both books, it's a way of the characters having that opportunity to, to sort of see themselves on the other side of the road or the other side of the river, uh, the other side of the story. Um, and so you have these these cases where, and I think for, I think for the reader, as well, there are doubles. There are uh, certainly the story of Una in in uh, Angels, who is this other kind of mysterious creature um, that's going on in Erica's life. In terms of the book, in terms of the time it takes to read the book, you get to experience them almost simultaneously or certainly sequentially. Uh, you know, the reality of the book is that it happened 10 years apart. But this is interesting that both mother and daughter meet this strange creature uh, who has a profound impact on their lives, and it draws them together in the end. This book has the potential to to be something of a, a tragedy, and I really think it is when when you started this book do, did you know how it was going to end did you know what the emotional arc of it was i did yeah i did um i i um there are two characters in the book margaret and her daughter that um I think, as you say, they could have sort of tragic consequences mm-hmm. uh, in their lives. And I knew what I wanted them to, where I wanted them to go. Other surprises, of course, I didn't know how Sean, the character Sean, was going to become such an important part of the story in the beginning. Um, and then that sort of forced my hand to add the epilogue. Uh, to the story where the reader gets to see sort of it, it doesn't come to sort of perfect closure for anybody hardly ever does but um gets to see sort of what this means to Sean as well so it added another layer for me and i i think that's kind of the exciting thing of working without a net is that you know as you're writing something new happens and you know you haven't outlined yourself into uh, you know, some strict construct, um, you allow yourself to, to take it a little bit further. And I, I, I'm really happy with it. I'm really happy with how, you know, the story ends. Um, because I don't, I personally don't know the answers. I don't know. There's a, another character in here who's something, uh, an element of the fantastic and yeah. at one point, um, uh, one of the neighbors refers to him as, uh, sees him, uh, calls him an ombre. Yeah. Now, I, I've got to ask, there's a old novel from the 1980s called Prince Ombra. Oh, was that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was unfamiliar with it. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, the man with the fedora. Yeah, the man in the, uh, in the fedora. Uh, he came, you know, interestingly enough, uh, in the process... Um, I usually start off with an image. I mean, I usually that usually triggers this whole um, sequence of other things, of other ideas, and it all comes together. Well, the image that I had was of a girl in a snowstorm on a playground and uh, feeling sort of at one, if you will, with the oblivion that a snowstorm sometimes creates is feeling perfectly at peace with that 
and she sees a figure approaching from the horizon through the storm. That set things in motion for me, that note, that image, that picture. And uh, the man in the fedora um, become, became for me this sort of trailing figure uh, who gives, certainly gives some menace to the beginning of the story. Um, but also, I think, more interestingly, uh, becomes a manifestation of, of uh, Margaret's, where, you know, the, in the first third of the book, you're waiting for this meeting, and, you know, it happens. And, but the main character, Margaret, um, you come to realize later, has something to do with the, the very presence of the man in the fedora. Um, and that's what, that's how it all worked itself out in, in the writing process. When you're immersed <clears throat> in, in writing a book like this, in, in writing a prose, um, well, first off, let me, just some of the, on, a, on the writing level, does a book like this just start with A and end with Z, uh, start with page one and end with page 347 and <laughs> come out? With the per- perfect prose the first time? No, that, it, it doesn't work like that at all. I mean, it, you know, the, there are... Now, I'll, t- I'll give you one example. Um, in, the pro- in the editorial process, uh, there was this feeling that Erica's disappearance seemed to pat uh, you know, just the rebellious teenager and so forth. And I, they said, you need another reason for her to run away. And with that springboard um, and knowing what the rest of the book was about, uh, I created this secret that she discovers about her father. And then once I did that, you know, then I had this whole other rich... Uh, area to tap into about his backstory and his life, and then it has a resonance later on in the book with Erica's own uh, artwork and and her story, and it just it becomes one of the sort of truly satisfying things about the creative process when you know you're encouraged to make a change, but you're given enough freedom. To create it and to to devise it, and and I actually am quite happy with that whole uh, subplot, if you will, of the novel. Uh, one of the things I really loved about this book was the way it kind of um, burrowed backward in time. It telescoped backward in time, and and there's for it it has just a lot of really interesting history in it. Could you talk about creating that kind of uh, it's like a tunnel? Almost, you, you tunnel back into time and talk about creating that and, and using that to to drive the plot too. Yeah, right. The uh, you know when the little girl comes on the scene, um, she encourages Margaret to tell her about her missing daughter, and she encourages her friend John uh, to help her investigate and, and uncover the, as much as she can about the real story of the disappearance of Erica Quinn. And in so doing, you know, then, for instance, for example, Sean uh, leafs through a photo album. And you've got all this kind of wonderful detail that I hope says a lot about the family history, and you know, and it, it allows you to go backward in time. Um, Erica's discovery of, of her father's secret pulls you back to the time of that father's secret, and and uh, you know, it, I think in both books, I mean, certainly time is a, a concern of so many stories um, and our notions of time, and and the way that um, each of these characters, each of the sort of the minor characters, if you will, 
they also have stories. They also have histories. They also have uh, recreated their lives in some fashion. And I was really, you know, having fun with people sort of revealing their secrets and and uh, telling us, you know, how they got to where they are. One of the things that's interesting in this book too is that. You get the sense that the minor characters don't really know their minor characters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they they seem to be quite full of themselves. They yeah. they don't know their characters. Even. That's right. That's right. And, and some of them are my favorite. Uh, that uh, may may this might say something about me. But they're a pair of um, uh, people and pair of men in in New Mexico who um, Margaret's sister Diane first encounters. Uh, in a little cafe, and they're, you know, they're sort of quizzing her about what's she doing here in New Mexico, and and uh, where is she going, and and then um, they kind of reappear later in the book, and but you, unless you're the reader, you wouldn't know those are the same two guys, uh, and they became like personal favorites of mine it's like all oh, these guys are so cool you know they're 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 down home angels you know <laughs> um so tell us um are you working on a new book i'm working on a new book i'm a good uh you know Sixty thousand words or so into it, so I'm marching right along. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that's good. So, is, is it? Are, are we preserving not this? You, you have such a unique. I, nobody else writes like you do in terms of having the the density of the prose, which is really beautiful and fun to read, and you feel like every image is another action point in the plot, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> is it? And it's uh, the sense of the fantastic as well. We like that. Well, uh, it's certainly, I'll, I'll give you a couple sentences on it. It's um, a murder mystery ghost story set that takes place entirely in the bathroom uh, of, <laughs> of the main character. And it, 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 it's inspired by the stateroom scene in the Marx Brothers movie, A Night at the Opera, where, uh, if you remember, uh, the boys are in a very small stateroom and they the porter comes in and puts her bed the waiter comes in and brings her the the masseuse or the you know the the hairdresser till finally the room is just so full of people they can hardly any nobody can move and Groucho says uh you know is it my imagination or is it crowded in here and uh i i i took that sort of literally um, what would happen if your imagination got too crowded, you know, and, and <laughs> off we went. We'll look forward to seeing that soon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I've been speaking with Keith Donahue. His new book is Angels of Destruction. Thank you for joining me, Keith. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.